the staff where we talk about our point of view And we share the things we're gonna do And we hope you're learning something new Cause the path to mastering theory begins with you Welcome to Notes from the Staff, a podcast from the creators of U-Theory, where we dive into conversations about music theory, ear training, and music technology with members of the U-Theory staff and thought leaders from the world of music education. Hi, I'm Greg Risto, founder of U-Theory and associate professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory. And I'm David Newman. I teach voice and music theory at James Madison University, and I write code and create content for U-Theory. Thank you, listeners, for your comments and episode suggestions. Uh, We love to read them. Send them our way by email at notes at utheory.com. And remember to like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our topic for today is music theory and working memory. And joining us to talk about this, as well as her new book, The Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, is Dr. Lee Van Handel. Dr. Van Handel is Associate Professor and Chair of the Division of Music Theory at the University of British Columbia. Her primary research areas are music theory pedagogy, music cognition, and the relationship between music and language. Her research is published in Music Perception, the Journal of New Music Research, and the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy. She is co-director with Gary Karpinski of the Workshops in Music Theory Pedagogy program, a week-long summer intensive where teachers can learn from six experts in the teaching of music theory. Lee, it's an honor to have you join us. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. And especially right after you won this award at SMT for, uh, what is the, what, what the award was for? Outstanding Multi-Author Collection. Fantastic. Yeah. So the, the, the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy um, had an insane number, uh, 68 authors and contributors. And so I think that qualifies as multi-author. <laughs> it's, it's a delightful book. I have to say, I, you know, we, we had, you. had a chance to speak with, uh, Melissa Hogue a couple of weeks ago and, uh, Stephanie Dickinson just about a week ago. Um, and I have been just really loving going through, uh, the articles in it. It's a, a really, I think, you know, so many uh, pedagogy textbooks come from one author's perspective. And I've just been delighted by the variety of perspectives offered. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the origins of the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'd, I'd been approached by Rutledge about putting together some sort of a essay collection. And um, the the Norton uh, music theory pedagogy book was like in its final stages. Like we knew what the format was going to be. We knew who the authors were going to be. And I kind of had that moment where I went, well, why do we need another one of those? Like what, what can I do that's going to be different? And um, it was literally like a shower thought, you know, you're in the shower, you're washing your hair and you go, well, wait a minute. What if, you know, what if I did this crazy thing where instead of like these long essays, we like put together a bunch of lesson plans and, you know, made something that's practical and useful and like immediately relevant to people. And um, so I, I pitched that to Rutledge and I don't think they knew what to make of that idea at first. <laughs> um but um, but I somehow I managed to convince them to go along with this crazy idea, 
And I sent an email out. Um, some people I targeted specifically. Um, I also sent emails to like um, the SMT mailing list and things like that. And just said, you know, send me your best lesson plan. Send me the lesson plan that you look forward to teaching every year that works every time you do it. And, um, and people responded. And I wasn't sure what the response was going to be. Um, you know, I, I, I thought maybe I'll get like 40 and maybe I can choose like 30 of them or something. You know, I got over 220. Oh my gosh. And yeah. <laughs> and so I kept having to go back to Rutledge and going, okay, so what are the limitations of the print again? Like what, <laughs> how many, you know, <laughs> how many pages am I allowed to have? And, um, and there were just so many amazing, amazing lessons. And it was so exciting to go through all of them and and figure out what to include. And it was just the the contributors were amazing, you know, that that they were willing to share sort of their uh, their best lessons and let people see what they do and then allow people to replicate it also, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was a, a an amazingly big project, but it was also really, really rewarding and in, you know, in a very nerdy way, a lot of fun. <laughs> and, you know, also <laughs> they're uh, the wonderful companion materials that so many of these lessons have as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I think that was another sort of innovation for, for the book is that um, authors, when they talk about like assignments that they might give or scores or uh, analyses or whatever, they provided the materials. And I created a website where all of these materials are on the website and you can go and say, oh, here's the assignment that this person uses after making that, you know, after doing that lesson. And so there's um, links to recordings and there's all of this material that people can use to make these lessons happen. And that was, that was really the goal was I wanted, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for someone to read the chapter and implement the lesson in the way that the person was recommending. And, you know, there's, I I also wanted it to be accessible to specialists in music theory, but there's a lot of non-specialists who are teaching music theory. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of schools these days that are hiring the, you know, bassoon slash theory or trumpet slash aural skills kind of instructor. And having them have these resources and materials was really important for me and having them be able to use them, you know, easily and right away. Um, so that was, that was the goal behind the, behind the supplemental materials was just making everything available as much as possible for everyone. That's great. I, I, I mean, you know, we've been saying on the past few episodes, we are just in love with this book. I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a decidedly a fan and really have just been thrilled to, to, I mean, as you say, to like have this window into these really excellent teachers best lesson plans. It's just delightful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the volume and I'm also incredibly grateful that I was allowed to come up with this crazy idea and see it through to completion and even more grateful that it's being recognized because that's just, just, you know, that means a lot to me. Um, so 
I have loved talking with you and Betsy Marvin about your work in music cognition. Mm. And um, your chapter in this on music theory and working memory opens by talking about the connection between success in math and music and how math pedagogy research can inform our teaching of music theory. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, so I wrote an article in, I guess it was published in 2012, um, in the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy about um, what music theory pedagogy can learn from mathematics pedagogy. And um, I have a really good friend who is a excellent mathematics teacher at the university level. And he and I would have conversations about how people learn math. And I, you know, we, and he was also a musician. And so we started seeing relationships between these things. And so I just kind of took it and ran with it. Um, what happens is that um, the best predictor for how someone is going to do in a freshman level music theory class turns out not to be how good of a performer they are or how good of an ear they have, you know, whether they have absolute pitch or anything like that. It's their score on the math portion of the SAT or ACT, depending on which exam they take. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of work that kind of needs to be done on why, but, you know, um, the article basically says, look, assuming that there is this relationship between these things, how can we borrow how we understand mathematics is best taught and adapt that into music theory pedagogy? Because mathematics pedagogy is a very, very well-funded field. Mm -hmm. Music theory pedagogy is not. So when we can steal research from anywhere, we should, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a lot of reading on, um, on how people learn mathematics. And to, in order to make the relationship between fundamentals and math, you sort of have to go back to first principles of mathematics, which is basic principles like addition and subtraction and things like that. And of course, the problem is most people learn those things when they're very young. And so the learning process, people are, people are usually concerned that it's a little bit different. There's actually um, evidence that adult learners go through the exact same processes that children do, just at a slightly faster rate. Hmm. Not slightly, just at a faster rate. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, so if you have someone who is still struggling with mathematics when they enter college, they go through the exact same processes learning basic math as as a third grader does, essentially. Um, so so then I thought, OK, if that's the case, then we can take these principles and apply them to our adult learners in freshman theory or so on who are trying to learn these very complicated systems of music theory. And, you know, one of the challenges is that um, mathematics is a well-formed system. Like if you add four plus four, you're always going to get the same thing. Uh, music is what's called an ill-formed system, which I find hilarious because, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, sometimes in one context, the answer to something is this. And sometimes in another context, the answer is this. And so there, it's actually even more complicated than learning mathematics in that way. Um, so yeah, so that, 
that sort of got me thinking about what are the different processes that we go through when we're learning to do basic mathematics? How can we apply that to basic um, music theory skills like spelling intervals or chords or scales? Um, and all of that got me thinking about um, the cognition of teaching and learning and about what are the sort of best, most efficient and effective ways of teaching this material to adult learners. And then that led into the working memory stuff and that led to the chapter in the Rutledge Companion. Mm, that's great. And in, in that chapter, you talk about three kinds of memory. You talk about long-term working and short-term memory. Can you tell us a bit about these? Sure. Um, so long-term memory is the essentially the the facts uh, the declarative knowledge or the procedural knowledge that you have sort of stored away in your head and it's material that's there and is available for retrieval and you don't have to walk around rehearsing that information all the time it's it's there you can sort of you know if you want to make the filing cabinet analogy you can go to the filing cabinet pull out that information when you need it and then put it away and you don't have to constantly be thinking about it um Short-term memory is our ability to hold a certain amount of information in our memory for a short period of time. So short-term memory is the thing that kicks in if you are trying to remember a phone number or if somebody tells you, you know, okay, turn to page 221 and look at example 4.3. You're holding 221 and 4.3 in your head and you have that in your short-term memory. Working memory is when you are holding a short amount of material in your memory, um, but you're manipulating it. And so if I said to you, you know, here's my phone number, and then you had to remember it long enough to run over and write it down, that would be short-term memory. If I said to you, here's my phone number, now repeat it to me backwards, mm. that would be working memory because now you're having to manipulate that information in some way. Um, or if I said like add one to every number of my phone number or something mm -hmm. like that, that would be that would be having to manipulate that information. And how consistent is like uh, do we is there sort of a base level of working memory that everyone has, or or do we vary in our ability to 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 use our working memory? <laughs> the answer to both those questions is yes, um, <laughs> the, the, which seems contradictory, but. Um, uh, in the 1950s, there was a psychologist named George Miller, and he did a sort of famous memory study in which he determined that the short-term memory limits for most people are, as he described it, five plus or minus two items. Hmm. So, you know, there's, there's a range in which most people fall, but some people have sort of more abilities and some people have fewer abilities. And so... Um, so yes, the answer to both questions is yes. There's a there's sort of a limit, but there's also sort of variation within that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then uh, you talk in your article a bit about the relationship between working memory and visual spatial skills or, or, or visual spatial skills. Can you first off, what are visual spatial skills, and, and what is that relationship? <laughs> So, so yeah, visual spatial skills are the ones that are sort of hardest to describe. Um, it's, it's, it's essentially like 
direction finding, um, the ability to rotate a, um, a figure. If, if you've ever taken like a, um, an, an online test or something like that, where it says, you know, here's an F and here's another F, but it's rotated and you have to say which direction it's been rotated or something like that. It's essentially the ability to manipulate spatial information. Mm-hmm. Um, and your podcast listeners can't see it, but I'm like rotating my hand around in circles mm-hmm. in, in very bizarre ways right now because I talk with my hands. Um, so it's that, it's that ability to sort of manipulate spatial information, keeping like one version of something in your head and then manipulating the other one to see how it how it changes. Mm. Um, I my theory and I have not yet have had a chance to test this, and I really, really, really want to. My theory is that visuospatial uh, memory comes into play in uh, music theory fundamentals, especially when we're talking about things like interval inversion and mm-hmm. things like that, or chord inversions, because mm-hmm. students have to be able to sort of spatially manipulate chord members that are out of order, basically, if they're in open position or if they're in version, they have to sort of be able to go, okay, I have a G on the bottom and then I have an E and then I have a C. Wait a minute, how do I rotate those around in my head to get them in the right order? Mm. Um, And I've encountered a number of students in my career who struggled with that in a way that was... um, more than I would have expected them to, I, you know, and um, and so I, I I have this sort of crackpot theory that I really want to test at some point, which is that if you have a visual spatial working memory deficit or memory deficit, then things like chord rotations or open position or things like that might be a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a clear uh example of that if you're playing on the piano because you because it does it 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 feels very much it looks like a rotation um how you how you position your right hand for example yeah yeah and that's actually um that's actually a really good point because one of the ways you can sort of combat that if it's happening is through some other sensory input sometimes if somebody has trouble sort of doing that mentally the kinesthetic uh reinforcement Mm. of thinking about a piano keyboard if it's something they're familiar with if they're struggling with the piano keyboard as well. This just adds another layer to the complication. But if <laughs> but it, if it is something that they're familiar with, then that can be a sort of kinesthetic reinforcement of the rotation or representation of the of the rotation, and can help them figure that out. But if they're if they're having that trouble, yeah. All right. So it, so in the context of these kinds of memory, how is something learned? How can we? make how can we solve this problem (laughs) that's a that's a great question um so when we are learning material um the first thing it does is it goes into our working memory and our short-term memory if we're manipulating it it's working memory if we're you know processing it um for knowledge it's short-term memory but as it's becoming knowledge and as we're trying to get it into our long-term memory we're creating what's called a schema And a schema is basically an interconnected network of basically all of the things that we know. And, you know, this is this is a gross simplification, but there's, you know, 
a sort of this network where when a new piece of information comes in, our brain goes, oh, wait, that's connected to this and to this and to this. So I'm going to put that there and I'm going to build these connections out to this other material so that this piece of information sort of partially recalls these other pieces of information when I pull it up. Mm. So, you know, you can have isolated bits of knowledge. The example I always give is you can tell someone who's a non-musician over and over that the key of A major has three sharps. And you can repeat that enough to them that they'll be able to repeat that piece of information back to you. And that is now a piece of knowledge that they have. It may even be living in their long-term memory if you've said it to them often enough. Um, but they have no context for what that information means or what they can do with it. So the schema is the network that helps you figure out, oh, okay, the key of A major has three sharps. I know what those three sharps are because I know this information. I know what that means in terms of scale because I know this information and I know what that means in terms of intervals and chords because I know this information and all of those things are connected and that's the goal that we want to get people to when we're teaching them fundamentals is we want them to have this schema where every bit of information that we're giving them reinforces every other bit of information hmm. that is cool that's that is I, mean, I just I think just right away about the implications for how we teach as well just how how important that means it must be to think about uh when we're introducing a new concept uh proactively tying it into things that we've already covered and making the the back connections and setting up the forward connections as well absolutely absolutely that's the critical thing um some students are able to make those connections on their own um, and, you know, they, they're the ones whose schemas are pretty robust. If someone's schema is kind of shaky to begin with, they need that sort of explicit connection to be made for them. Um, and even if they don't need it, it helps. Mm -hmm. It helps them to go, oh, this is how this connects to the material I already know. It helps reinforce that material. And like you said, it, it helps sort of lead forward to whatever other way we're going to expand that information in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And this is a little off topic, but it, it uh, you know, it makes me think of how one, how, how does one deal with remediation? Mm -hmm. But a, a good description of what you're trying to do is trying to help find where someone's, where the holes in someone's mental map are and, uh, and maybe help patch them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, um, you know, I've, I've been teaching fundamentals for a really long time because I absolutely love it. Um, but one of the things that happens is if a student is struggling with some material, they're usually not struggling with that material. They're struggling with one of the steps on the way to it. Right. And so you have to sort of investigate their schema a little bit and figure out where where are they having that struggle? Where are they failing to make that connection between something and then help them make that connection? And, you know, I, I can't count the number of times I've spent time with a student doing that. And when you finally find that sort of fundamental misunderstanding or that thing that never quite clicked for them and you work through that with them and then they go, oh, wait, 
And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, like the, you see the metaphorical light bulb go on over their head and they go, wait, now I get it. And this means this and this means this. And they get really excited because suddenly all of these things fall into place. And, you know, quite honestly, those are the moments that that I love. Like, I yeah. love watching that light bulb go on and I love watching them see that connection and see this sort of connected world of fundamentals opening up in front of them and them seeing how to navigate through that path. And it's, those, those are the wonderful, wonderful moments. Hmm. That's, uh, that's great. That's, that's so great. I, you know, I think, um, for, for me, sometimes one of the challenges of that, and probably for a lot of teachers is, and you talk about this in your article is the curse of expertise. The, this idea that the, especially when we're teaching basic concepts in our field, we know those so well that it doesn't tax our working memory at all. Um, mm-hmm. What are, could you maybe give an example of this and, and help us with how we can work through that curse of expertise as teachers? Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so the curse of expertise is basically when you've gotten good enough at something that you don't remember what it's like to not be good at it. Um, and as a result, what that means is that you forget how many steps a non-expert has to go through to get to that point. Um, so my my favorite example of this is um, because we are all experts, we do not have to tax our working memory at all if we're trying to remember how to spell common chords, for example. You know, if somebody says to us, what's a D major mm-hmm. chord? We go D, F, sharp, A. There is no... Yeah, exactly. And we don't have to uh, use any cognitive load on that. There's no working memory burden. It just pops out, right? And it pops out immediately. What we forget is that for someone for whom this is new material, there's a tremendous number of steps that they have to go through because the number of steps that are involved in figuring that out, if we don't already know it, are really quite big. So if you go, okay, what's a D major chord, then somebody would have to go, okay, so wait a minute, which notes are in, if a D is the root, what, so it would be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, okay, D, F, and A. So I'm going to have some kind of a D, some kind of an F, some kind of an A. Now, they want major, so major, let's see, where's that on the circle of fifths? Okay, that's two sharps, what are the order of sharps? So I'm gonna have F sharp and C sharp. And wait a minute, what were the notes of my chord again? I had a D and an F and an A and I had F sharp and C sharp. Oh, F, F sharp, F sharp, aha, it's D, F sharp, A, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit for, you know, comic purposes or demonstrative mm-hmm. purposes, but, but those are the steps. And, If any one of those things is not really that solid, you know, if they had to spend more time thinking about the key signature and the order of the sharps and whatever, by the time they came back to what were my notes that I had, they might have forgotten which Mm -hmm. the notes were if they don't have those things set together as a chunk. Um, And so it's it's really a, a, a quite working memory intensive task that we're asking someone to do if it's not already in your schema. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas we just go DF sharp A, no problem. So one of the one of the horrible things that I've asked people to do in presentations on this is I've said, okay, we are all 
experts at the ABCDEFG system. So let's take that away. You're not allowed to use ABCDEFG. We're now going to use H-I-J-K-L-M-N, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I see you're counting them out on my fingers, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that, you know, think about your fundamental students who are going, doing the same thing on yeah. their fingers, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Yeah. They're experiencing the same thing. Or even worse, they're doing C, D, E, F, G, A, B, right? And struggling with the wraparound after G. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Mm. You know, so then in this in this exercise that I do, I say, okay, we've got H, I, J, K, L, M, N. Those are our new note names. Let's keep the conceit of root third and fifth of a chord. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll sort of alternate to spell chords and so on and so forth. Um, wrap around when you reach the end and don't write this down. Do it in your head. And so then I'll give them some examples and I'll say, okay, in that system, what if I is the root? I. How do you K- spell the chord? I K M. Yes. Ooh, I K M. But yeah. <laughs> but you had to count it out on your fingers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah. We can't see that. But yes, I'm sitting here and yes, absolutely counting out on my fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if oh, and, and H is the third. Uh-huh. Oh. M H J. Yes. Oh. Why was that one harder? Because I had to wrap around. I had to I had to work backwards from H, which is the start of the mm-hmm. alphabet. To, and I and I and I couldn't wrap backwards <laughs> because I couldn't remember what the end of the alphabet was. So I had to go all the way forwards to the end of the alphabet and then count backwards. To get to the... <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so yeah, so that that's a really challenging exercise. And then then I make it harder. I like add different things in where you have to um, so you have to spell the chord and then you have to look at what I call a target word and figure out how many letters the target word has in common with the chord that you've just spelled and manipulate the chord in some way. Mm-hmm. Um and, which is essentially the process of figuring out your letter names, thinking about the circle of fifths, thinking about what the order of sharps and flats is, and then applying that to what you're doing. Um, and it's it's really kind of a humbling experience mm-hmm. for a lot of experts. Um, some people don't find it that that difficult, but they're still, you know, taking 10 seconds per chord to do it. You know, whereas if I say what's a D major chord, you go D, F sharp, A, and it takes you one second. And so where this where this creeps in is that as expert musicians with our cursive expertise, we forget the number of steps that someone has to go through in order to solve these problems that we're giving them. And so we go, oh, you know, okay, here's 10 intervals. You can do this in a minute. Forgetting that, you know, we can do that in a minute because it's six seconds per interval, but they're having to go, okay, so wait, they want a a major sixth above E. Okay, so six, uh, E, F, G, A, B, C. Okay, so it's some kind of a C. Now let's see, major six. Oh God, what's the key signature for E? And, you know, and all of a sudden now we're already at 20 seconds for this one interval, whereas we look at that and go C sharp done next right mm-hmm. so so one of the things that we have to think about when we're designing assessments or when we're you know 
trying to assess fluency is we have a different level of expertise than our students do. We are able to come up with this information much faster because it's in our schema. That is the goal for the students. We do want them to be able to have that material that available. But if they're just learning it, it's going to take them time to get there. And so we have to allow for, for example, more time than we think on time tests. We can't go by how fast we can do it, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also have to remember that it is really going to help the students if we make those explicit connections that help them develop that schema so that they can then develop that expert recall that we want them to have. But, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking a lot about this idea of a schema and, and uh, kind of the interconnections between, uh, you know, pieces of information within that schema. I, I wonder, does this tell us anything about the value of uh, memorization versus saying, uh, understanding processes for deriving ideas? Yeah, it does. Um, so if you are memorizing information, um, yes, you're getting it into your head and you're able to pull it back out, but it's usually not connected to other information as well as it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, a, a good example of this is, um, Think about someone who's like memorized a piano sonata or something like that, any piece of music. Um, what happens if they make a mistake and have to stop? Mm-hmm. They usually have to go back to the beginning of some section because that's where they've sort of created a mental like here's, you know, here's where this starts and I have to go through. It's harder to pick up sort of in the middle. Um And that is if they've sort of memorized it by rote, Mm -hmm. right? I do this thing after I do this thing after I do this thing. And then if you stop in the middle and go, okay, what comes next? They go, "Ah, I I have to go back to the beginning and sort of work through all of this. Mm. Whereas if you have the information memorized, but you have it connected to other information, then you can go, okay, this is where I am. This is what comes next and start back up from where you left off. Um, And the same thing happens in spelling chords or intervals or whatever. You know, if you, if you get a problem and suddenly you get distracted and then you go, wait, where was I? Oh, right. I remember this. And then pick back up and go where you, where you left off from. Mm -hmm. And in a topic like music fundamentals, where we do want students to eventually gain that kind of fluency and ease and speed that, that, you know, really only comes at the point that a lot of these things are, as you said, immediate knowledge accessible in long-term memory. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, does that have implications then for how we, how we teach to get them to that speed? Very much so. Um, you're about to open up a rant on how we teach intervals. Is that okay? Please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's there's a number of different ways that people think about teaching intervals, and one of the ways that some that people teach intervals is by teaching students to count whole steps and half steps, um, and you know, the, the, the good, the benefit of teaching whole steps and half steps is that it's a sort of algorithmic process. The, 
the bad thing about it is that it is not connected to any other piece of information, Mm -hmm. right? So if you get a student who is going, okay, every time I see a major third, I'm going to count four half steps, then they're not necessarily learning how these things connect to one another, right? Um, or, or how these are connected to the bigger schema. Um, so I cringe internally a little bit when I see people teaching intervals by whole steps and half steps, just because it's, it's, it's memorization of an algorithm, not of not adding it to the system. Mm -hmm. And so there's a number of different ways that you can take students who are relying on doing that. Um, and sort of move them towards more sophisticated understandings of how these things relate. So um, obviously one way of thinking about it is, you know, if you're asked to asked to um, spell a major third above F, you can think of F as the tonic of the scale and then go, okay, what's my key signature? How does this relate? And so on and so forth. Um, and that works uh but the problem with that method is what happens when the bottom note is a D double sharp and you don't have that as a tonic and so on and so forth, right? So then when that happens, what expert musicians do is they go, oh, okay, let's see, you're asking me for the, 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 the interval I always give when I give this example is a minor sixth above D double sharp. Mm-hmm. And that is because pretty much nobody has that interval stored yeah. in their memory anywhere, <laughs> right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so you actually have to think about it. So what happens is if we, if we sort of metacognate about how do I solve that problem? Expert musicians do what's called decomposition. They go, all right, D double sharp. No, I am not thinking about D double sharp. Mentally, I'm covering up that double sharp and I'm thinking about D. Now, let me think of a minor sixth above D. And if we have it in our memory, we go, okay, minor sixth above D is B flat. Otherwise, we go, now I can think of the scale of D. And now I can think of D minor and, you know, figure it out that way. And I go, okay, now I know that this is B flat, but my, my interval was above D double sharp. So now I re-manipulate that and I go, I'm going to raise my D by two half steps. I'm going to raise my B by two half steps. And now my answer is D double sharp to B sharp, Mm -hmm. which is a ridiculous interval and nobody should ever encounter that in their lives, but it's a good example (laughs) of, of, you know, of how we can move people through a strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is spelling or somebody is spelling the interval by counting half steps and whole steps, they have to remember that there are eight half steps, eight, eight half steps in a in a minor six, mm-hmm. and then they have to count up from D double sharp. And you know, if they're just counting, there's a really good chance that they're gonna land on C and go, oh, my answer is a C mm-hmm. and that's not a minor sixth, and you right. know, other other problems come about. Um, and if they're just relying on that scale method, then they're going to run into trouble because they're going to have to think about what the key of D double sharp is, and nobody should ever have to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so the the, the sort of more sophisticated steps are these decomposition steps, which is where you take a piece of information you already know and manipulate it into the piece of information that you need to find out, mm-hmm. mixed with this idea of immediate recall. So, you know, if we couldn't immediately recall 
a minor six above D double sharp, but we probably could because we are expert musicians immediately recall what it was above D, D right? Yeah. So we, we did the immediate recall for that and then the decomposition to manipulate that information. So what we want to do is we, when we're teaching students to spell intervals, we want to move them as close as we can to that immediate recall. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we also want them to have the other strategies in place for when the immediate recall doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, and I talk about this some in my, in my 2012 article, what we want to do is we actually want to show students that these strategies work because if they're stuck on using half step and whole step method to count intervals, it's because they don't trust their schema to give them the right answer otherwise. So they're going back to the version of this process that they think is the most reliable Mm. for them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do in the classroom when we're, when I'm doing this is I very, very deliberately talk about process for every single question that I ask them, Mm -hmm. you know, so when I, when I was in the theory classroom, I had teachers who would like point at you and go, what's a major third above a flat. And you had to like answer, you know, like immediately. Mm-hmm. And then point at the next person and point at the next person and point at the next person and like bark out intervals and you had to answer as quickly as you could. And A, it was terrifying and intimidating. But B, you never like if you got the wrong answer when when he was barking at someone else, if you even were practicing these intervals along or if you were just sitting there in terror waiting for your turn, um, you didn't know why you got the wrong answer. So one of the things that I do is I will always say, you know, okay, so what is a minor third above F? And I'll let people think about it for a second and then I'll call on someone. And if someone goes, oh, it's A flat, how did you get that answer? And if they say, I just knew it, I'll say, okay, what if you didn't just know it? Like, it's great that you knew that, but what if you didn't just know it? How could you get that answer? And then make them go through the steps of saying, well, you know, I could have thought of the F minor scale and realized that the F minor scale has four flats and that A flat was one of them. So the the third above F is going to be A flat. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. What's another way? And then somebody will go, well, I thought of the F major scale and then lowered the third by a half step. Okay, great. And so I'll do that so that the students who are struggling with these processes see how that works. And more importantly, they see that students are being successful with those more sophisticated strategies. Because ultimately what it is, is they don't trust the strategy yet because it's not quite, their schema isn't quite put, built up enough so that it's working for them. So you have to work on the schema, but you also have to work on that confidence. And so that's where having, you know, making that schema explicit, making those connections explicit is super, super helpful. Ironically, the other type of student that this helps not is um, so that it helps the student whose schema is not fully formed yet. It also helps the overachieving perfectionist student who 
has the immediate recall, but has to double and triple check to make sure Mm. that their answer is correct. And so they end up spending way too long on every answer. And so, you know, if you get if you get like interval quizzes back where two thirds of the questions are answered, but they're all correct. You've got someone who is double and triple checking their answers to make sure that they're correct, which means that they're not getting through as many as they should because they don't trust their process. So having those students see, okay, I'm using this process. This other person used this process. They got it right. I should trust my process more. I should trust my schema more. Also helps those sort of perfectionist students who are afraid of making a mistake. I love this reminder that that perhaps what we, you know, the, that our, that we need to be mindful of what our goals are and that the goal is not necessarily to know the piece of information, but to build the schema. Exactly. Exactly. That is the piece of that building that schema is a thing that's going to help students moving forward. Having the isolated bit of information that a minor third above F is a flat will be useful in some circumstances, but does not help them with anything else really going forward. And I think related to that, uh, you talk in your article on working memory a lot about uh, ways that we can use our knowledge of working memory to improve our teaching. And I wonder I wonder if you could talk about uh, the, some of the strategies you identified, specifically identifying and intervening uh, with working memory issues and also reducing cognitive load. Sure. Um, so the question when I present on this, the question I always get is, okay, how do we how do we figure out who's having those working memory problems? Um, the easiest way to tell if someone is having a working memory problem is um, I think we've all had students who like brain dump a whole bunch of information on the top of a test or an assignment. Yes. And, you know, so they, they'll write out the note names and they'll draw the piano keyboard and they'll draw the circle of fifths and they'll do like all this stuff on the test. And the reason they're doing that is because that is reducing the burden on their working memory. They've now offloaded this information onto the page so that they have something to reference and they don't have to do the mental calculation each time. So those kind of things are crutches, basically, and they will help the students at the beginning, and then they will hinder them as they move forward. And because they are not developing quickly enough the schema that they need, and they're relying on this offloading of information. And they're doing it because they're having trouble developing that schema. Um, so this, this actually relates to both... Um, working memory and schema and cognitive load, because essentially they're trying to lighten the load on their uh, cognitive burden in order to to calculate these things. So so that's one way of identifying them. Obviously, another way is if a student is struggling with material, then they probably have some sort of a weak link in their schema somewhere, and you sort of have to spend a little bit of time with them to sort of drill down into that. Um, but, um, so, but there's other cues as well, other than like, um, performance on assessments. Um, so, you know, if students have, if if students are sort of exhibiting trouble in processing information simultaneously or keeping information in their heads or, um, 
forgetting what the next step is in a complicated process, for example, you know, if they're like, okay, wait, 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 what do I do after I do this? You know, it, it has to be a constant thing. It's not, you know, um, but working memory deficits are also implicated in things like ADHD or other attention deficit disorders. It's not the cause of it, but it's sort of implicated in that. Um, and so they might be easily distracted, um, especially if, if an activity is challenging. Um, they might, you know, sort of um, try to avoid completing the activity just because it's, it's become hard for them and they don't want to acknowledge that it's hard for them. So they go, oh, look, a squirrel, right? And they sort of get distracted by something. Um, so... Students who have ADHD or other um, neurodivergencies like that, they tend to exhibit sort of behavioral problems. Students with low working memory exhibit some of the same symptoms, but they typically don't exhibit any of those behavioral problems. So if there's no other sort of issues, then working memory might be implicated in something like that. Um, so... So the thing is, there's no real way that we can train our working memory. Mm. Um, so there are, if you listen to like National Public Radio for any period of time, you'll hear ads for Lumosity or something like that, you know, train your brain kind of things. And studies that they fund talk about how this helps you with your working memory or with, you know, brain processing and so on and so forth. Um, independent studies find that that's really kind of not the case. Hmm. Um, the tasks that something like Lumosity are asking you to do, you can get really, really good at those tasks, which are things like swipe on the direction of the center bird or things like there's the, there's sort of these different exercises that Lumosity gives you. You can get really, really good at swiping in the direction that the center bird in a group of five birds is facing, but that's not going to help you spell chords. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's there's no transfer from the type of task that something like that is asking you to do into music theory fundamentals. Mm -hmm. You sort of have to pra practice music theory fundamentals and you have to develop that schema of music theory fundamentals in order to, to get better at it. Um, and you mentioned cognitive load and that's a, that's a really, really important thing for instructors to think about because if a student has a working memory deficit and you are standing in front of them going, Okay, so everyone, let's turn to page 88. Let's look at example 12. I want you to identify passing tones, neighbor tones, or, uh, you know, um, appoggiaturas. Like if you're listing a whole bunch of things, by the time you're done with that list, they've forgotten what page you asked them to turn to because they've been trying to keep all of this material in their head as you've been going. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get the, what page? What example? What are we doing? You know, and so... This is one of those universal design for learning principles that it's better for everyone, not just people with working memory deficits, if you give instructions very, very clearly, if you provide time for processing, if you write it on the board so that they can reference it when they have questions, you know, it's 
the the cognitive load of if, if the cognitive load of the task you're asking someone to do is very high and you're dumping more information on them as they're trying to do that task, they're going to fail at the task. They just, you know, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's going to be some sort of an interrupt, whether they've forgotten the instructions, whether they've forgotten the task, right. Or how to do the task. So, so there's a lot of principles in learning about the best way to reduce cognitive load on students so that they can put most of their cognitive load on the task that you're asking them to do. Clear instructions, instructions that are in the same place as the question. So for example, don't design an exam where the instructions for a question are on one page and the question is on the next page Hmm. because then they're flipping back and forth and they have this split attention issue where they're not able to read the instructions and immediately look at the thing that they're being asked to do. Um, The other thing I've, I've observed people in the classroom where they will play music during some kind of a test, like music unrelated Um, to the test, they will play music during the test. And their, their feeling is, you know, well, students like to listen to music when they study. So I should do this when they're, but that's a huge cognitive load drain, mm -hmm. because students with working memory issues or with attention issues are going to be distracted by this thing that you're doing. Um, and so that's that's always something I did, you know, don't play extraneous music while students are concentrating on something. And one of the one of the things that I figured out also was if students are doing a test and I have a, a musical example that I want to play for them, for example, um, it's really intrusive of me to go, okay, everyone turn to example three, I'm going to play the example now and then play the example because they were in the middle of a task. They were in the middle of something and they had, you know, their thought processes going and they had all of that stuff where they were trying to remember, okay, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And suddenly I barge in and go, okay, pay attention to this now. So what I'll do is I'll tell them, I'm going to play this music example at 10 after, at 15 after, at 20 after, and I will give you 30 seconds notice before each time I play it. And so when it gets to that point, I will very quietly say, okay, finish up whatever task you're on. I'm going to play this musical example in 30 seconds. That gives them time to sort of make notes to themselves or finish that thing and then sort of get that gone so that they can now concentrate on this new thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's worked really, really well because one of the things I noticed when I was not doing that was that students would like leave questions blank because or like half completed because they forgot that they were working on it they looked at it and they went oh i've got an answer there that must be right and then moved on to the next question Hmm. and i don't see that as much anymore when i'm sort of mindful of directing their attention in specific ways and carefully asking them to finish up what they're doing and now let's pay attention to this Oh, I'm I'm learning so much just talking with you now. This is this is this is wonderful. I you know um, I have the sense we could go on talking for hours, but 
Uh, of course, you know, time is always... That's probably my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a gift to us. It really, it's just, it's delightful. Um, but, you know, I, 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 for people who would like to learn more from you, um, there's certainly that opportunity. You and Gary Karpinski coordinate the uh, Workshops in Music Theory Pedagogy series. Could you tell us a bit about that, about, you know, who, who that's for? And if people want more information about that, where they can find it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Workshops in Music Theory Pedagogy have been a, a workshop series that's been hosted every three years. Um, they've been hosted by Gary Karpinski at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, Gary has retired and he's asked me to step in as director. So this year is his last year. We're co-directing this year and we're moving them to the University of British Columbia. Um, and they are June 26th through 30th of 2023. Um, the workshops con are, consist of um, four faculty that are brought in who are expert music theory pedagogues. And it's a week-long workshop where you... Um, where each faculty member talks about like their strategies and things that they're specialists in. And then there's also sort of small group workshops with each faculty member each day. So you can sort of choose who you want to go work with and get sort of more uh, information and feedback from each person. So this year we have six faculty. It's uh, Gary Karpinski, me, Michael Callahan from Michigan State, Nancy Rogers from Florida State, Gina Root from Youngstown State and Jenny Snodgrass from Lipscomb University. And so it's an amazing, amazing group of music theory pedagogy scholars who are going to have a ton of information that they can share with people. Um, the, um, the, we're in the process of finalizing the registration, like, financial stuff like just getting the ability to for have to have people make payments but there is a website that you can go to which is just workshops in music theory pedagogy.com and that will take you to the UBC website where the information is and that that website will um, eventually include links for registration and housing and meals and basically you just live on campus um, for a week and do these workshops, these interactive workshops. And it's, it's a wonderful type of nerd camp, um, which is, which is perfect for people who are like grad students who are studying to be music theorists, music theorists who just want to hear other people's perspectives. Um, it's wonderful for, uh, faculty who maybe are non-specialists in theory who are being asked to teach music theory. Every single time it's offered, we get somebody who comes in and goes, I'm the flute instructor. I've just been told I'm teaching oral skills in the fall. Mm -hmm. What do I do? What about and like, it's the perfect... What about like high school teachers who maybe are absolutely. starting to teach AP theory or something? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's actually a, a great population for it as well because... You know, if you're a music ed person, you had theory classes, but you probably haven't had them in two or three years. And now you have students who want to do an AP class and you're terrified. Come to us. <laughs> Come to us. Um, and we will, we'll link to, to that site in the show notes as well. 
Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's really exciting that it's being hosted in British Columbia now. Um, June, late June in Vancouver is an absolutely stunning time to be in Vancouver. And, you know, so I know a lot of people are planning on taking a couple of extra days at the beginning or at the end to do some sightseeing around Vancouver's area. And it's just, it's, I'm, I'm super excited to, to have it here and to be part of it now. Cool. <laughs> and, and aside from that, what else are you up to these days? Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm still relatively new at UBC. Um, I started in September of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. So to me, I feel like that first online year didn't really count. <laughs> I feel like mm. I'm still figuring out how things are going here. Um, but I've managed to get a really good music cognition lab going. Um and so I'm doing lots of music cognition research. My main interests there are uh, meter, rhythm, and tempo. And so we've been running a whole bunch of experiments on uh, perceived rhythmic complexity and rhythmic patterns and what makes people feel like something is complex. Um, and um, yeah, so that's that's, pro that's probably the primary thing that I've been working on recently is, is that project. Cool. <laughs> I just I just can't wait to yeah to hear I know what we need to have you on again as well. <laughs> uh, this has been just <laughs> such a delight talking with you today. I, I wonder uh, if listeners are interested in keeping up with what you're up to. Uh, where can they find you? So um, they can search for me on the University of British Columbia website. Um, I have my own website. You'll eventually find it if you search for like Lee Van Handel Music Theory. It'll probably take you right to it. Um, on that website, you'll find um, information about my research lab. You'll find information about the um, Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy. There's also a blog that I have that I call Ask Dr. Van, <laughs> where I get um, I get a lot of emails from like middle school students who have to do some sort of a research project <laughs> where they email a faculty member and ask a question. And so I started answering the questions and then putting them up on the website with the identifying information redacted, of course. Um, and some of the questions are really great, really sophisticated that sort of take like multiple iterations of questions to answer. And some of them are, are just wonderful questions like, why is Stairway to Heaven the best song ever? <laughs> <laughs> And I had, you know, I, I had to sit down and figure out how to answer that song, that question. But um, so that's really fun. Also, looking at that and seeing that, you know, even younger students are really interested in music and what it means to them and how they how they think about music. Some of the questions are theory oriented. Some of them are, are cognition oriented. And it's just really fascinating to see that that kids are thinking about this and, you know, hopefully these are the students that we can get interested in it, keep them interested in it. And they're going to be our fundamentals theory students and our music theory, cog music theory and cognition students in the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, and people can also email me. Um, <laughs> 
lee.vanhandle at ubc.ca. Awesome. So if anyone has questions, they can email me. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. Really just a, such a delight to, to learn from you. I, I feel like I've come away from this with a hundred ideas that I'm going to have to just sit down and process uh, as I start to incorporate them into my teaching. So really, thank you. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, Utheory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach. <laughs>